something kind of cute that started popping up on the internet not too long ago was this new style of meme where it says something like, tell me how old you are without telling me how old you are, or tell me you have a younger sibling without saying you have a younger sibling. Um, say you're a graphic designer without telling me that you're a graphic designer, and there's some sort of image or video or what have you that is illustrative of the situation that is being exposed by, um, that d describes whatever it is that the meme is asking. Um, it's a rather undynamic way of describing it. Um, so for example, tell me you're Gen Z if, without saying you're Gen Z, and then it shows like some hot chip. Um, what's cute about this is it's as if the internet going public has invented literary analysis uh, without trying to invent literary analysis. Um, so let's discuss this. This is something I've been plugging for a while and have been sort of like hesitant to discuss directly. Um, but it should be noted that that is, even though it sounds pretentious, that the defining characteristic of being a human being, the defining thing that separates us from animals, uh, if you had to boil it down to one ability, it would be fiction. Now that sounds like a, a massive exaggeration. Um, it sounds like uh, a complete and utter hyperbole. But really, fiction is the driving force behind our super powerful um, conformity and um, sharing of efforts in sort of one direction. Um, we can get to all of that soon enough. But the reason I want to discuss this is because it really is something that we, we tend to, to kick and scream against when it's in school. This idea of, of reading a book and discussing what it means, reading a poem and describing what is being said here. And it seems so tedious, and it seems so unnecessary. And I've heard just more often than not, people complain about how, oh, there's all these hidden meanings I'm supposed to find, as if uh, fiction writers sit down and deeply encode um, symbols and uh, metaphors into what they're writing. And as if there's a right and wrong. Now, far be it from me to contradict whatever teacher you have, who tells you the exact right way to interpret one book over another. But you should know that, that these symbols and these metaphors, these are natural occurrences in our life. Thus, that meme exists. The whole idea of showing us something without saying it directly is um, what literature has been doing for a very long time. So we're going we're gonna to jump into it here, this whole notion of literary analysis. When you're analyzing literature, when you're analyzing a poem, when you're analyzing a television show uh, or a meme, what you want to be able to do is say something about it that it's not saying for itself. You're supposed to look into what meta message is being communicated. What's the message that is reaching you sort of telepathically through this writing that is lending a deeper and perhaps more um, uh, universal 
notion of the human experience. Now, see what I mean? It sounds really pretentious. Um, Ernest Hemingway was really good at this. Or what Ernest Hemingway was, was good at is this idea of writing in the negative space. That is, writing and having the story take place, not in the words, but in the suggestion around those words. Um, a rather famous example that you've probably come across at some time or another um, is the six-word story that, uh, according to legend, somebody had challenged um, Hemingway with his um, uh, notorious economy of words. They said, write a story in six words. And I, who knows? It seems like a terribly insightful challenge for someone to pose. And, um, and what Hemingway supposedly wrote, uh, most likely on a uh, cocktail napkin while drunk, was... Um, for sale, baby shoes, never worn. So you can see from those six words, for sale, baby shoes, never worn, that there's a whole story there, a whole story of longing or loss or um, unfulfilled uh, passion and desires, all sorts of things. And it's the stuff that never happened that comes into focus. And it's that never happening that has left a hole in the life of whoever it is that's the protagonist of this story. And it allows you to sort of unpack from these words uh, an entire narrative, which may be not exactly the same for any two people, but will have similar notes of that emptiness that is suggested by those words. So that's, in essence, what, what literary analysis is about. It's about detecting the um, universal sort of baseline that is being communicated through the experience of these characters. Now, that might sound like much, but we do this all the time. Um, you need look no further than memes for that. You need lo look no further than memes that speak to the decade that you were born or um, some sort of universal experience that you and your friends had, some sort of a school lunch that was served over and over again, uh, a cartoon that happened after school during your age group that communicates to you a certain sense of nostalgia, a certain sense of brotherhood with these other people, a certain sense of, of a shared and common language and experience that may seem somewhat localized to only folks born in or around your year who have been through the same sorts of social, social situations and upheavals and drives and, and different public education um, pressures that all sort of coalesced around uh, your particular sub-generation. These things send a message. We have universal experiences. Not all experiences are universal, but they happen. And many of these, especially the more emotional ones, can last not just generations, but can be universal experiences that happen over and over again for thousands of years. The same sort of heartbreak that a character might experience in Shakespeare is the kind that you will experience when you're 15 years old and you get your heart broken. And it will feel, as far as we can tell, on those sort of same notes. And so there is a shared and common value. Now this doesn't mean deeply decoding um, a hidden intention of the author. Now that happens. That happens. And to use Hemingway as an example, 
um, uh, his short story, Hills Like White Elephants, I've taught in classes forever. And uh, we can get into quite lively debate about what this couple is arguing about at this train station in Spain. But it is very clear um, through reading it hundreds of times that this couple is arguing about whether or not to have an abortion. And this is encoded in what they're saying, but and uh, that may seem like some sort of a, an earth-shattering secret that, that you're able to decode what two people are arguing about at a train station in a short story through just their words and none of their inner thoughts, uh, or very few of their inner thoughts. And um, it may seem like that the real trick here was Hemingway hiding within it um, this argument. But really, there's, there's a more palpable experience going on than that. And that experience is that these two people are arguing about something that they don't want to mention, that they don't want to name, that saying what it is is a little too close to the bone. They're going to hint around. They're going to uh, try and bring out in each other um, some sense of control and some sort of sense of decision that has a meaning to it that will supersede the literal and rather obvious meaning of uh, terminating a pregnancy. They want to feel around and see if there is something in their relationship or in their lifestyle or their way of being that can be the more meaningful element to their bond, the more meaning ele meaningful element to their lives. And thus, just directly arguing about something is going to distract them from what it is they're trying to anchor themselves in. Now listen, I, this, this got pretty pretentious there. But, um, and what I mean by pretentious, I suppose, is that I seem to be ornamenting the um, uh, emotion from the lives of these two fictional characters. But these are messages that I get when I read the text. And if you are a reader you are getting messages from the text and your personal interpretation is just as valid as anybody else's. And that might seem insane uh, because, you're again, you're going to have teachers who are domineering and try to tell you what it is that this means and that your interpretation must match theirs. But uh, that's, that's rarely the case. And the, authorial, uh, the author's intent doesn't really matter. When we are reading for meaning in a piece of literature, what the author meant to have come across doesn't really matter. It only matters if their message is the same as the one that you're getting. But it's the reader's experience that matters. Otherwise, they're not communicating well in the first place, or they're having a personal experience that has nothing to do with the rest of our universal experience. So I, the example that I was giving with Hills Like White Elephants is that sometimes an author does... Uh, encode um, what two people are talking about, but really it's the characters that are encoding it there. The author is not pulling a magic trick. The author is not trying to make a meaning pop out at us that isn't inherent to the story. He's writing a story about two people who will not discuss what's bothering them. And it's the propensity to not discuss what's bothering them that is the meaning that we actually draw out of the story. So before we go too far off the deep end, you know, there aren't too many uh, works that we all maybe have read. Um, 
so we this is why uh, literature professors tend to sort of fall back on um, either works who are that are extremely familiar to us or um, children's literature because a lot of a lot of us are extremely familiar with um, you know Alice in Wonderland or Alice through the Looking Glass um, if not through the books then through the the cartoon uh, or we look at the meanings that are in nursery rhymes or um, other things that are handed down generation after generation that um, are not part of the literary canon because reading is so much more fragmented than it used to be um, and that's just from the sheer number of publications out there and the dismantling of the literary canon as it has existed for so long um, and the fact that people don't read as much as they used to um, but a, here's a good example of Simpsons episodes um, the Simpsons is really great at providing social commentary um, an episode might just be um, you know flagrant and fun or it might be directly attacking some sort of a <clears throat> recent news story or social condition or problem that is bringing to light. So for example, there's an episode of The Simpsons in the 90s where uh, Homer and his family befriend a gay guy who owns a store at the mall. And when Homer finds out that the guy is gay, he starts really demonstrating a bunch of really out of character homophobia, uh, where he's sort of afraid that by hanging out with this, this dude, it's going to turn Bart gay and um, starts uh, leaning on his friends to try and come up with a bunch of uh, you know, really manly things that they can try to make Bart do, um, and ultimately hunting is what they fall back on. The point is that this episode would make no sense to us if we hadn't dealt with homophobia in our lives, if we hadn't seen it around us, if we hadn't ourselves wrestled with our own homophobia, um, then this episode wouldn't make a lot of sense. There are other episodes of The Simpsons that deal with income inequality or uh, wealth inequality or um, race or in tons of episodes about gender. It's a great episode where um, Lisa takes on the Malibu Stacy um, doll collection because the Malibu Stacy doll is, is demonstrating some really... Um, uh, unfavorable female stereotypes and this of course came from the talking Barbie which came out I want to say it was 1992 or 1994 that talking Barbie came out and she said like four phrases you'd push a little button on her and she'd say one of four things and three of those phrases completely escaped me I don't remember what they were but the fourth phrase was math is hard and this sort of stereotype that that this woman that this Barbie doll um, through whom children, especially um, uh, girls, have glommed onto over the years to better understand what their lives are going to be like when they're older, that they use as an avatar for exploring the world of adulthood. And suddenly you have this woman that these kids are using as their avatar slash role model saying math is hard and it feeling particularly aimed at girls and it um, particularly uh, stating that this is not an expectation of, of girls or women, that they're to learn math. And it's easy for the doll company to say, guys, this is a toy. It's a toy, and it's just, it's just saying this, and math is hard, so what's the big deal? Um, but the message that a lot of people were getting from this 
is a message of lower expectations of intelligence in women and a uh, preferable um, projection of stupidity um, that would be attractive. Because Barbie has always been um, the popular, attractive uh, person that embodies the stereotypes that uh, had molded our um, social awareness of, of, of what all of that means since 1950 or whatever that it was she was invented. She didn't invent the stereotypes, but she perpetuates them. And her saying math is hard became a uh, huge uh, controversy and a forced Barbie into um, facing its own problems with feminism and its own problems with sexism that it had never really directly wrestled with. Um, it had only really given lip service to through the 1980s. And The Simpsons addresses this, and The Simpsons constructs a show that puts all this together and makes this sort of argument and makes us more aware of the messages that are coming through toys like this and the ways to reach out and, and encourage people to overcome these stereotypes. These messages are there. This is what fiction does. Fiction brings to light the world that we live in and it embodies it in a way that we can begin to face and grasp and wrestle with the problems that we encounter. So when we see Huck Finn trying to free a slave and we see that Huck Finn is riddled with guilt over this, that Huck Finn at every step of the way considers turning Jim in to the authorities instead of helping him get free because Huck knows that he is going to hell for this. Now on the one hand, one message you might be getting is that this is deeply racist. This little white boy thinks he's going to hell for helping a black guy get his freedom might on the surface seem very racist, especially when you encounter the language that's being used in the, in the book. But on a deeper level, the level that, um, that Twain is communicating on is that this boy has been indoctrinated into believing that there is a moral and religious right for white people to keep black people captive, for them to take away their freedom because this is the way that that power has been maintained, not just through the laws, but also through the churches and through uh, indoctrinating children from a very young age so that this, you know, um, Huck Finn was 11 or 12 or what have you years old, believing that God himself is going to damn him for helping this guy get free. And by putting all this together into uh, the narrative that, that Twain did, it faces down this uh, social problem, this problem with racism, this problem with slavery, this problem with um, the way that we force our children to believe something that is not supported by any sort of factual basis but that instead supports the power structure, supports the way things are, supports the stereotypes. Yeah, Twain could have sat down and written a nonfiction book that argues all of these things. Who would remember that now? How powerful would that have been? Instead, 
what Huck Finn does well is presents great moments of humor, great moments where where you are sort of like lost in in how um, amazingly funny that book can be. And within just a few pages, it becomes so dark and so depressing that it, it, it produces within you absolute sorrow. And this emotional, aesthetic experience communicates to you in a way that cannot be forgotten because it turns on senses within you that are made through evolution to help you understand the people and places and society around you. And it touches those and it lights them up and it brings them into an awareness so that it better registers with your mind than some sort of factual conversation would than some sort of speech or some sort of essay or some sort of argument. The way fiction is constructed, it's made to reach our animal selves. It's made to communicate an experience that we learn from, despite all of our critical thinking skills, despite all of our ability to reason. It ends up being those stories that touch us hardest. That's why we can look at all sorts of giant, um, reasonable statistics that prove something to us, but our experience, our individual experience, or the anecdotal experience of a friend of ours can outweigh all of those statistics, and we can end up not believing whatever's being argued. For example, when I was little, and the seatbelt law just got put into action, my parents, along with most other kids' parents at the time, were saying, why are they doing this? Why are they forcing us to wear seatbelts? That seems ridiculous. It's our lives, etc., etc. Despite the fact that thousands and thousands of research were put into uh, seatbelts, into understanding just how safe they keep you, there were so many anecdotal stories about the way that the seatbelt um, uh, could in fact, kill you just under the, just the perfectly right circumstances. And I think I shared a story about that before. We hear the same thing about guns, about smoking. You know, so many times, despite all the research about smoking, somebody will say, oh, my grandma was 99 and she smoked every day of her life and la, 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 la. And her grandma was died at 65 of lung cancer. And yes, this is all true because anecdotes happen because there's different little points of data all along the way. But we're talking about dealing with 7 billion people. We're not talking about dealing with you and your grandma. You factor into that somewhere along that 7 billion. But if you're going to be like, you know, playing dice, and I want to hit a 6, I'm doing much better rolling a 6-sided dice than I am a 30-sided dice. And that's what happens when you start playing by statistics. You lessen the chances. You moderate your chances of doing something stupid. But stories can drive us away from listening to statistics. But stories can also drive us towards a socialization process by which we understand the world around us. They're that powerful. They can do both things. So this is what I mean when I say that fiction is the biggest delineating factor between people and animals. And I've given the, this example a million times. Money is fiction. Money is a fictional basis for power. 
It's a way to encode power that we all collectively believe in. When we all collectively believe in a fiction, it becomes a social construct. And a social construct is a belief that we all share. And it can be something like money. It can be something like the patriarchy. It can be something like um, uh, eugenics. Um, depending on your time and place, it can be something like slavery. It can be something like a, a military, a corporation. These are all fictions. These are all things that don't quite exist. We understand this better through practicing direct literary analysis. But we understand it on an animal basis anyway. We get these messages anyway. So, um, for example, when you're a kid and you're watching episodes of Arthur or, um, you know, uh, Blue's Clues or Mr. Rogers, depending on what generation you are, you are learning elements of socialization and emotional intelligence and understanding friendships uh, while you're just wrapped up in a story, while you're just watching somebody else's experience. It's communicating something a little bit more universal to you that helps you understand uh, the way the world works around you. Now, it used to be we did this stuff sitting around a campfire uh, because we were always camping and we were uh, more animal than um, the uh, thing we are today. And our grandparents or parents or um, village elder would be telling a story that would uh, explain to us the roots of something important, why we did something, um, the reason behind some ritual or belief or way of life, and that these stories would take on a certain gravity within us because not only would they answer questions that we might have, but they would set expectations for how we are supposed to behave in the future, for what's expected of us as we grow older, for what is going to be meaningful in relationships and in building families and in fulfilling our role in dealing with the world when we are the co-creators of it. So in a sense, uh, these fictions do serve as a type of indoctrination. And that's why you can so effectively indoctrinate somebody into a certain belief. But they can also be very freeing. They, they can do it all. And uh, this is why when television came along and became very, very pervasive, and it became the storyteller for a generation, that things became very different. Because suddenly, um, television uh, made it where instead of hearing you know, several hundred stories a year, any kid was exposed to thousands and thousands. By the time they were 16 years old, they had seen you know, 10,000, 20,000 stories play out over 30-minute increments. These little tiny story arcs where a character gets into a mess and gets out of a mess and gets into a mess and gets out of a mess and always brings it back to the um, uh, starting point, always brings it back to where the character started from, having learned some lesson. You know, think of Dorothy. She goes off to Oz and has this giant adventure. Things get worse and worse and worse for her. And the minute she gives up, her friends come to her rescue, and then she's finally sent back to Kansas where everything is just like it was, except now she appreciates it. And now she understands that she doesn't have control over everything because in her little adventure, the only way that she was able to um, uh, be saved was by giving up.
was by not trying to exert control, by, by trusting in the friendships that she's made. Maybe you haven't seen Wizard of Oz for a while. That's your homework. But, uh, and if you haven't seen it, um, read it. Because in, in the book, at least, she actually goes to Oz, and I think that's an important distinction. Um, so, when television starts replacing all these little stories with, with their own stories, uh, there became this uh, new locus of control. And this locus of control was um, capable of, of changing minds, changing the way that we saw and witnessed and understood the world around us. Uh, through the control of, of just a few people. And this start, starts scaring parents, and uh, they want there to be more control from schools to tell our children how to behave and whatnot. Uh, because that, that once that locus of control is sort of taken, um, they look for someone else you know, to, to take it on rather than themselves. Um, which, you know, for a lot of times the institutions do a better job, but that's neither here nor there. If you take a look at like the oldest novel ever written uh, in Western society, <clears throat> in uh, the oldest novel in English is um, uh, Robinson Crusoe, and I recently read it, and it's really it's a terrible book. It's a terrible book because um, you're probably familiar with it. It's about a guy who gets shipwrecked, lives on an island. Not only is it completely inaccurate about how you would survive on an island. As a, as a shipwreck guy in the um, late 1600s, um, it's also really exposes this um, absolute superiority that was going on within the British uh, psyche at the time. As the British Empire was expanding and taking over lands and spreading um, you know, through colonialism, spreading Christianity and uh, the influence of the crown <clears throat> and bringing back all of uh, the cultures that it was absorbing back into English life, which certainly made English life more interesting, um, it uh, could become a moral challenge for the average Brit to sit around knowing that they're just taking over the sovereignty of land of other places. So two things can sort of combat that. One is a sense of uh, triumph and victory and superiority. The other is a natural sense of superiority, that biology has brought you here, that biology and God have set you above the rest of the world and put you in this position of power. And that's really what the message in Robinson Crusoe that comes through the strongest is this notion of the Englishman as a superior form of person to anybody else. Now, probably um, Daniel Defoe did not consciously try to weave this in, but it exposes the mindset of the time. The messages come through. As this character, Robinson Crusoe, does um, terrifically ridiculous things to survive, such as make a table and chair, um, which shows that the superpower of the you know British mind was civilization. That a British person stuck, left to his own devices, could create um, the dignity of civilization, wherever he was, um, invariably a he in these stories, but especially in Robinson Crusoe. And as he encounters other people, uh, people of other races, he is by far the superior one. And he sets himself up as master. He sets him, the other guy up as servant. And this servant becomes grateful 
They become so grateful for his teaching about Jesus. They become so grateful for his way of showing them the dignity of pants and of not eating other people and all these other little touches of civilization that uh, the British man brings with him as he spreads his um, divine prowess around the world. Now, listen, it's a fun story. You can read this and, and you can have fun. It's an adventure book. And you can read it on that level the same way you can play with a Barbie doll and say, hey, this is just a toy. The same way you can read a book and say, hey, this is just a book. This is just a show. But the only reason that a toy, a book, a show would be at all worth it is if it's communicating something, if something's coming through. And you can read Robinson Crusoe casually, and, and it's enjoyable. And it's valuable in seeing what that mindset was like. It's valuable to see the way that Daniel Defoe encodes this. And, uh, and I'm not saying that it's not. It's, it's, I'm, I'm not one for banning books or anything. I'm not saying that because white supremacy is a problem that we need to ban Robinson Crusoe. I'm saying we can understand white supremacy better by reading Robinson Crusoe because the messages are all there and they weren't the intent of the author. The author did not mean to show somebody, you know, uh, 400-ish years in the future what white supremacy was like. What he meant was, was um, to write a popular piece of fiction, which he, he totally did, and, you know, he got paid for it, and that's great. Good for him. Uh, it's pretty absurd, though. You'll, you'll, if you read it, you'll see. There's, there's better books. Um, you know, Jonathan Swift's... Uh, Gulliver's Travels came right around the same time, and it's it's a better book, and it has plenty of social commentary that really attacked the the British Empire at the time. So that's that's fun. Um. So what I'm saying is that decoding the messages that we're finding in stories is a life skill that is very important to be taught and passed on. And the fact that you have to do it so transparently in school uh, could be a fallacy. And the fact that you um, may have a domineering presence in any literature class that insists on a particular interpretation is a fallacy. But if you can read or watch or play a video game and understand the cultural, um, emotional significance of what's going on behind it, if it's communicating that well and with impact, then you you know you know the difference between a really literary book and a sort of uh, you know on the surface popcorn blockbuster book. That's a lot of fun, and there's nothing wrong with that, and it's good reading, and it helps your brain to read anything. So don't put that down. But you know when the book is doing all the thinking for you, and you don't have to worry much about it. Versus a time where uh, the book is revealing to you um, on a different level a type of uh, cultural communication. Same thing with movies. We can all watch funzy blockbuster movies that do all of the thinking and action for us, and we can all watch those sort of deeper movies that bring some sort of an emotionally important thing where... where uh, the real story is sort of happening off the page where it's just like that Hemingway six-word story where the negative space is painting something 
And once in a while, you'll, you'll get a nice mix, and, and that's always good. You know, the original Star Wars trilogy is a really nice mix between uh, the blockbuster fun stuff and then the sort of drama and inner conflict that happens off the page that we don't quite see, but that is communicated to us. Um, and once in a while, something trying to be blockbuster and just for fun ends up being really good on accident. Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure is a great example where it was really meant to be just sort of a bonehead comedy. But instead, it sort of brought up all sorts of great social commentary on the education system and our own relationship with history and our own like sort of like misunderstanding of um, our ability to grasp uh, the world that we live in. They didn't know that was going to happen. It wasn't the intent of the movie, but, but it came through and it was powerful. Um, so practicing this in, in indulging in reading it because that's the most dense way to experience um, this uh, aesthetic um, power is with through really good literature is it's good for your own social weather vane. And whether these books um, were intentionally encoded or were accidentally encoded, um, by the author's own experience and their own point of view as it becomes um, illuminated through what's going on. Um, we learn about where we come from and where we're going and what's expected of us, and we learn to better detect the inner desires of the people around us and what they're expecting and what's, what's um, uh, important and exciting for them. And we're better to understand the, the power that um, our fictional institutions and social constructs have in our own lives. And uh, there, there's really no better teacher than that. There's really no better way uh, than that to really educate yourself.